You're listening to As in Heaven, a Christian conversation on race and justice. In this episode, we continue our conversation with John Adagon and Amin Hudson about power dynamics in culture and society, and the concept of transitional justice as a means to bridging the gaps in America's traumatic racial history. Jim Davis is your host. Mike Aitchison, once again, is your co-host. Mike Graham is the executive producer, and my name is Matt Kenyon. I'm the technical producer. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode of As in Heaven with Amin and John. Related to the subject of power dynamics in language is the concept of power in general and how it plays itself out culturally, sociologically, and in the church. So this is another all play. Whoever wants to, um, to answer this, can you unpack some of the various parts of Scripture where you see significant power differentials between people and how Scripture encourages us to navigate those, those differentials? Even in general, one of the, some of the power dynamics that you see in Scripture, you see the power dynamics between the weak and the strong, right? You see power dynamics between the rich and the poor. You see power dynamics between um, those who have power and those who don't have power. In Scripture, usually power is, um, is also, it also comes with resources <laughs> and money. Um, you see, even in James chapter 2, you see when James is talking about the partiality that the church is showing. And he says, why are you guys showing partiality to the rich who are dragging you guys to court and oppressing you, right? Power dynamics there. You see it even between Jew and Gentile, which we see Paul trying to actually bring the, the, that, that reconciliation to, uh, about in, in the New Testament, especially what's happening within the New Covenant, what, what God's plan always was for his people, right? Being a, a multi, having a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. Um, you see this between the, 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 the Hellenists and the Hebrews in Acts chapter 6, right? Um, one of the things that I think that we see in Scripture— in which we, in which God um, shows us, is that we should be concerned about justice that ha- that that needs to be that that happens in the in the context of dynamics of power within society, right? So in Isaiah one seventeen, he says, you know, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widows the the widows' cause, right? Um, you see him in Proverbs thirty one. We see it says, speak. Uh, speak to those who speak for those who can't speak to, for themselves, for the rights of those who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Uh, we see in Jeremiah 22, uh, uh, it says that the, the the Yahweh says, "Do justice and righteousness, and and deliver from the hand of the oppressor and those who are being robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow. Don't shed innocent blood in this place." So it's all over Scripture in which God shows that He has a heart for the vulnerable, right? And usually what we have seen in scripture is that the vulnerable are those who are outside of power or those who are who are the weak within society. That's who God has a special place for. It's not about partiality, but God goes to those people. It's who God loves, right? Um, and so um, God is, is particularly drawn to the weak. So much so that even in, in, in Romans, when Paul is talking about the weaker brother, Paul talks about the stronger brother favoring the weaker brother. Right. So much so that even when he's talking about meat, even when he's talking about dietary restrictions, even when he's talking about that, he who does Paul who does Paul say we should favor the weaker brother, even though on a technicality, you can technically do what you want to do with your liberty here. Right. But who you should be actually concerned about is the weaker brother among you. He doesn't Paul doesn't kind of tip his hat to the strong. He tips his hat to the weak because he's being like God. And that's how God always is. 
And I think that for the Christian, what you have to do is recognize who is the weak in society. How do we contextualize that? Who is the weak in society? That's going to look different. The 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 weak in a, sometimes the weak in America and in the, the history that we have in America is unique. It can look different than it looks in Africa. Look different than it looks in in other countries. But if we're talking about here, you have in America stateside, we have to deal with who has been the weak and the vulnerable here. Right. Immigrants have been weak and vulnerable. The poor of, of all races have been weak and vulnerable. People of color have been weak and vulnerable. And, and, and there's ways in which it still happens. So God cares about that. And I think about um, even when we think about Act six, when there's when, when, when you have the, the 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 conflict between the Hellenists and the Hebrews and they're, when they're saying, hey, we our widows are being overlooked in the distribution. Something has to be done about this. Right. What right, what right. do God's people do in that context? They don't say, "Well, your people are your people are probably not working hard enough to get what you what you need in the distribution." Maybe you guys aren't mm-hmm. loud enough. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you guys aren't where you should be. Maybe you guys aren't in position to get what you need. There's not any excuses being being put on them. They acted immediately and swiftly to ameliorate the problem. Right. So so what they did is they said, first of all, hey. Us as the main guys, we can't really dedicate time to this, but we need to seriously look at those who can. So let mm-hmm. us pick men in our community that is full of the spirit of God, people that we know that love Jesus, that are gonna that are gonna be like God, they're gonna have the heart of God for to not be partial, they're gonna be, have the heart of God to serve. Let's choose these people and we are gonna lay hands on them and pray over them before they even start serving, showing that this was really, this this was a, a very serious matter for them. It wasn't just like, hey, choose these people and have them like hand this stuff out. It was like, no, we need God to, to, to move in this, right? And so we are going to, we are going to establish these people that are going to make sure that the Hellenists get what they need. And the people that they established were also Hellenists, right? So, so, and, and, and I think that what happens though, what you see in Acts chapter six, I don't think that what is going on in Acts chapter six is that you have the Hebrews intentionally trying to discriminate against the Hellenists. Maybe some of that is there. But what I think is happening is what usually happens a lot of time with predominant culture is that I think that the Hebrews did not even recognize that the Hellenists were being overlooked. That's usually, mm-hmm. and that's why God talks so much about you being intentional about uh, 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 doing, uh, uh, do, not only doing things for the poor, but, uh, but, but noticing the vulnerable within society. Because if you are not part of the vulnerable, and if you are part of those who are, who are, or, who are predominant or have power, you will not see them. Mm-hmm. You will overlook them. And I mm-hmm. think that that's what was happening in Acts chapter 6. It wasn't like, we don't like y'all, we're not going to serve y'all. I think it was like, we don't even notice that y'all are not getting served because our people are being served. All I see is me, our people, and I see that our people have what they need. I'm not even recognizing that there are other people here that are going without, right? So I think that one of the, I think that one of the things that we have to do is we have to be intentional about recognizing who, who is being devalued and those who are the weak and vulnerable society, which is why God talks about it with so much intentionality, because if we're not intentional about it, we won't care. That's mm. the thing about it. I don't need help not caring for the vulnerable. My heart and my depravity, all of our hearts and our depravity already been towards not caring about other people. I don't mm. need any mm. more help doing that. What I need help, what I need the spirit of God to help me do is actually start caring and having mm-hmm. a heart that's not this orthopathos, this right a uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, feeling and affection feeling, and emotion yeah. towards the vulnerable. That's what I need help with. I don't need help not seeing them. I don't need help trying to make excuses for why they are where they are. I need help with my heart breaking for them. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, 
yeah, I think that scripture speaks to this a lot. And, 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 um, and I think that God's heart is, is, is bent towards the vulnerable. And if his heart is bent towards the vulnerable, then our heart should be bent towards the vulnerable. And if it's not, then we have a God problem. We don't just have a, like a theological problem. We have a heart problem. If God is a, a, is a God of the fatherless and a, and a protector of widows, and we are not those people. When 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 those when the when the quartet of the vulnerable is speaking up about how they are being um, how how they are being suppressed and, and and even oppressed in society, and we make excuses or or we tell them that it's their fault or we find anything that we can find to make us not have to care about their oppression, we have a God problem, bro, and we're mm-hmm. not being nothing like nothing like our Savior. I share the same sentiments. I mean, you and I have we've talked about these issues for years. I think about uh, I mean covered a lot of ground scripturally so just to reinforce that I think about the means by which our savior came into this world right and the expectation that Jews and well Greeks but Jews had of how the savior were to come into this world and he flipped all of that on its head and it's just incredible for me to think that Jesus came into this world as a brown man uh, born into a low-income family without access to modern-day health care, if we call it that. So that's the type of family that Jesus was born into. And it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise us that Scripture is riddled, of course, the Old Testament with the quartet of the vulnerable and the New Testament of clear, clear uh imperatives of how we ought to care for the most vulnerable among us because God embodied embodied what a man uh, how uh, God embodied uh uh in his vulnerability as a human he embodied that for us and he mm-hmm. identified with the most vulnerable within that community and when we are called to care for the immigrant, the orphan, the widow is Mm -hmm. a call that comes from God's heart himself. And those things for us, and as Matthew 25 talks about, will really reveal if we're truly his. So if we're grappling with whether or not we should care about these issues, again, to reinforce Amin's point, it's a God problem. And we're called to be a voice for the for the for the vulnerable, where we're called to pray for for those who lack access to resources, because there are structures and things that are put in place to, uh, that not only they start at a disadvantage, but put them farther back than where we many of us can even start. So, Scripture speaks very clearly clearly to these things, and yeah it's i i think it's 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 encouraging it's a it's a truth's truth and it's encouraging to know that jesus spoke to these very things very clearly he embodied them for us and they're in conversation or as we're grappling with these issues whether or not they become politicized or not as I mean said, yes, it could be a God problem. I think scripture, uh, uh, biblical illiteracy is an issue, right? Because if we're not able to know God's word and see how throughout redemptive history, he's always been on the side of the most vulnerable, the most and, and the oppressed among us. How should we view those who are in our midst? How should we view them? Would, G, would God be approving the way we're maltreating the most vulnerable in our community? 
And for you fellow Christian or believer that are watching or listening to this, what's your heart posture? Ask yourself this question. When you see someone in your community that is disenfranchised, whatever that looks like, either they're an immigrant, they're someone that lives on that bad side of town that you don't want to take your kids to, where's your heart posture? What's your heart posture when you see that image bearer, someone created with dignity, value, and worth? What's your heart posture when you see that image bearer? I think that's a question we, we need to ask ourselves. And if, we're, and if we're wrestling and if our hearts are in a place of despondency against mm-hmm. image bearers that mm-hmm. aren't at a disadvantage because of their own doing, but they're, they're sorry, they're not a, at a disadvantage because of their own doing, but they're victims because of systematic oppressions that are in place against them. We need to be asking ourselves, what would God have me to do? Right. And, and, yeah. and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean yeah, to go keep going. Go but even what John said, I think it's very important, especially because of the, the whole culture war around justice, when he says that they're not necessarily uh, where they are because of their own doings. Like the Bible makes it very clear. I think, I think it was actually Tim Keller that pointed this out, that people don't, that like people's situation is, is not always a result of the choices that they make, especially when the Bible talks about poverty, man, the, and disenfranchisement. The mm-hmm, Bible talks mm-hmm. about poverty and disenfranchisement can come by someone, yes, culpability of, of what, there's one being lazy, not working hard enough. Bible talks about poverty and disenfranchisement coming from situations that people have no control over. It could be natural disasters. It could be famine. It could be COVID-19. It could be mm-hmm. those things. And then the Bible also talks about poverty um, being, people, people being in poverty because of injustice, right? Like mm-hmm. Proverbs mm-hmm. says that, Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 13, it says that the follow ground of the poor yield much fruit, but it's swept away through injustice, mm-hmm. right? Um, Michael says, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds when the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power, the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. There's a very real sense in which injustice happens due to oppression, Mm-hmm. And, and poverty and disenfranchisement happens due to oppression. And Christians should be speaking to all of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is not political. Mm-hmm. Um, every one of those things should be spoken to because God speaks to all of those things. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I, that's it's time to pass the plate around. <laughs> Go ahead, Clint Offer, fellas. Now everyone's gonna understand what you just said. Can, can we get one more? One more? Let's let's sing that last line one more time. Let's get oh, these young there. brothers to where they need to go on this mission trip from First Missionary Baptist Church. We gonna pass Baptist. the plate around one more time. Man, oh my goodness! You know, as you guys were talking, I was thinking about just the Mosaic laws with the gleanings, with the Sabbath years, the Jubilee. And Moses Moses even says, and don't you dare withhold a loan from your brother if it's close to the Sabbath year because it would be tantamount to a grant. I I mean, he anticipated the ways that people would try to uh, slipshot their brothers. And I think about what you all said about how the powerful— and Scripture is is very clear about this. It warns about the dangers of power and the proclivities— uh, certain towards certain sin. Think about um, Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21, where 
uh, Ahab sees Naboth's vineyard and he wants it. He wants to annex his land as Micah uh, preaches against. And he's like, this is my father's inheritance. And then Jezebel's like, well, aren't you the, um, aren't you the king? Uh, I mean, she's like, well, let's, let's figure this thing out. And so she concocts this plan and what are they to conspire to take the man's land? So it's, uh, it's, it really is just very clear what you all, you, you presented clearly the Bible's concern for uh, the least of these and the emphasis that Scripture places, Old and New Testament. Okay, this is an entire redemptive story issue. Um, thank you for bringing that to the fore. So as we think about that, uh, one of the things that seems obvious after the civil rights movement was that there was a failure at uh, every level of society to investigate uh, what, excuse me, instigate what many have come to call transitional justice. And so um, these are steps that have been taken in places um, uh, where significant trauma like Rwanda and South Africa uh, to deal with egregious structural problems. And one sociologist defines uh, transitional justice like this. It's a set of measures and processes adopted to deal with the consequences of mass human rights violations in the aftermath of regime changes, violent conflicts, wars, and other historical injustices that were uh, derivatives of undemocratic regimes, colonization, occupation, and so on. And Dr. Anthony Bradley offered up a few handful examples of transitional justice as well, um, and some of the things that should have been done in the wake of the civil rights movement uh, but never happened. And he said reopening unsolved racially motivated crimes, including lynchings, acts of domestic terrorism, and other crimes against humanity. He said assess and redress uh, monetarily those who had been victims of crimes and thorough vetting of those actively participating in things like the KKK and the Citizens Council and their removal from public sector employment like the criminal justice system. Uh, state legislatures, social work, public education, law enforcement, and the list abounds. And so uh, society should have robust programs for education, for the education and memorialization of those who are victims to preserve historical memory. These are just some of the things that um, he teased out um, in terms of examples of transitional justice that should have happened in the wake of the civil rights movement. Um, so as we think about this, if you had uh, a magic wand and could go back to the late 1960s and early 1970s and could use that magic wand to help America transition from the late civil rights movement into a version of America with greater human flourishing for black and brown folks in America, uh, what would be a few things that you would do? I, I kind of feel like in, the, in, in responding to that, we also want to acknowledge how... Uh, we have historically been on the wrong side. I say we, the church, we need to own a lot of these things. We have historically been on the wrong side of all these issues, especially going into uh, in, in the 1960s. You think about slavery, we defending slavery, um, siding with the Confederates, uh, church-based discrimination, Christian schools and organizations being developed and propped up in an effort to segregate um, uh, black and white people, Ooh, reconstruction and black codes, right? Not advocating uh, for 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 issues there. 
the the assault on blackness and and within the culture and not defend defending within legitimate people's humanity and the citizenship of black people uh, obviously jim crow right and defending you know segregated churches lynching my goodness like the the list goes on and on and of course the freedom movement at the church I, I say this grieving, this grieves my heart, but the church has historically been on the wrong side of these issues. We've had individuals that God and through their own volition, but God in, in other spaces has raised up to be voices during those times. But if I had a, a magic wand, I would, I, I think I wish the church would have stood on the side of the vulnerable and we didn't we failed and that that's one of the things i think not the entire church but by and large the church failed during that time and we have made great strides up until today but we're still dealing with systemic racism and then during biases that still permeate that are still permeating within our culture and not to mention uh, you know, all of the societal wounds that black, brown people have had to carry in terms of generational trauma because of all the things that have trans because of all the things that have happened over the last century. So I think the one that I would that I would wave would be one of a church standing up for the vulnerable. If the if the church would have stood up for the vulnerable, a lot of these things wouldn't wouldn't have had to happen, but unfortunately they did, and that can be uh, that can sound accusatory towards us. But we need to own those things as God's people. We need to own them. We need to, and I think that requires. Uh, I don't know what public repentance would look like with that, but that requires some level of acknowledgement that the church. Um, has co-opted a lot of these things. Um, yeah, I I actually agree with John. I think that um, I think that John you know gave like a, a really good um, kind of like survey on that because I I feel like one of the things that that the, we in America, man, when we when when the when we had like the Civil Rights Act passed and we had the Voting Rights Act passed and we had Brown versus Board of Education and we had I mean, we can keep going on and on about laws and, and things that we have done to essentially say that we are ameliorating these problems of injustice and discrimination within our nation, within our country. We've passed all these non-discriminatory colorblind laws. But I think that one of the things that we know as Christians is that laws do not change hearts, bro. Um, laws being passed does not change hearts. And one of the things that I think permeated America um, especially during those times is, is I'm going to say a bad word here, white supremacy. And what I mean by white supremacy is not people dressing up in KKK uniforms and, 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 and all of that. I, I mean, centering whiteness in, in, in white experience. And, um, and I think that the, that's one thing that the law did not fix, that the law may have, have codified new non-discriminatory colorblind type of uh, laws and as far as form, but it didn't actually play itself out that way in function. That's why when you had Brown versus Board of Education um, pass, and then later on, you saw the, especially in the nineteen, like late sixties, early seventies, you saw the 
the the the this kind of emergence, this erection of these privatized organizations, mostly Christians, that were seeking to get their white children out of these schools so that they had they didn't have to integrate with uh with 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 these black kids in these schools, especially in predominantly black um districts. And then uh and then you saw that, you know, that move into arguments about religious freedom. Uh, you saw during the civil rights movement, people say that folks like Martin Luther King, I'm talking about the, I'm, what I'm saying is that theologically conservative Orthodox Christians calling, you know, those black Christians who are fighting for justice, Marxists and communists, which is, which is now, I, I guess the, the, the equivalent would be Marxist now, but they were calling folks like that communists. They were, they, 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 they were even calling them Marxists. Uh, they, they, you got to go look up the essay that King wrote on Marxism, why he disagreed with it and why he was not a Marxist. Um, but they called him that, you know, you had Christians during, uh, the antebellum period that when you had abolitionists fighting for black folks to be free from slavery, you had Christians during that time saying that these Christians who are fighting for the freedom of black people at this time are being, uh, deceived by humanitarian ideology. Um, and that humanitarian ideology is creeping into the church and turning the church into a justice, uh, movement instead of a movement about the gospel. Um, you had Presbyterian pastors that preached during uh, antebellum periods against injustice and then church members sending them notes and coming up to them after after service saying that you need to just preach the gospel and stop talking about all the social justice. So what I'm saying is that what happened in the history is still happening. We hear all of the same arguments now. Right. Right. And the church does not recognize the way that they are repeating history. It just looks different. And And so one of the things that I wish that we would do is we would take justice seriously. And if I had a magic wand, I would hope that we would wind up on the right side of history by not being moved and, 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 uh, and I, and I, and I would even say, um, established in political partisan and even American ideology, but that we'd be established in a biblical one mm-hmm. that transcends ideology where you can advocate for justice for your brothers and sisters in Christ and not be seen as a liberal or as a Marxist or as anything that your political, you know, tribe is going to blast you as simply because this is what they're rooting their ideologies in and then putting a Christian veneer on top of it. Mm. Um, And I think that that is what the church needs. We need to be radically transformed when it comes to the way that we view justice in society and how we, we need to stop linking it to partisan tribal ideology, but we need to link it to biblical ethics. The biblical ethic behind God's heart is what is, is, is what this is bleeding and flowing out of. And until we, until we kill those idols of, of, of partisanism, until we kill those idols of Americanism, um, until we, we kill those things, we are going to be experiencing reiterations of the same problem over and over and over again. And in every society, it's just going to look different. Um, and I think that one of the one of the ways in which one of the things that has vexed me is as I have studied the history of Christianity and its relation with politics and in its relation with justice is how much the Christianity of of uh, of of the, the 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 Christianity during the antebellum period, the Christianity during civil rights, even even just even pre all of that looks similar, that the arguments are similar, that that the accusations are similar to 2020. And it just looks different, right? Um, so so uh, we, we, we don't see 
the value that the black church has bought to Christianity in America when it comes to having a holistic understanding of the gospel that doesn't just save a man's soul, but also cares about a man's body and a man's plight. Jesus did not look at people that were in the situations that they were in and said, I know that you need help. I know that you need, I, I know that you, I know Mr. I know Mr. Leper that you are being ostracized from society and that this leprosy is ravaging your body, but I'm going to give you the gospel and every and all, and then everything in the by and by will be well with you. That's not how Jesus actually went about preaching the gospel on earth. It wasn't a social gospel. Jesus was primarily concerned with the salvation of man's soul. He wanted men to be saved. He wanted men to have eternal life. But that's not the only thing that the gospel requires of us, man. Mm-hmm. That's what we see all throughout the Bible. Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 25 when he's like, I was, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was sick. I was, I, I was in jail. You came and visited me. I needed clothes. You gave me clothes. I was hungry. You gave me food. He's not just talking. He's not talking about spiritually. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the Exodus when God frees the people from 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 everybody. Like, oh, the Exodus is just talking about the covenant and it's just and it's also spiritual. And, God, and then God tells his people, look, now that I freed you from the land of Egypt, don't turn around and do the same thing to the sojourners because you remember what it was like. Right. That's not talking right. about spiritual. He's mm-hmm. not just talking about spiritual. Right. So we have we have devalued the witness that 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 not only black Christians, but that the black church has brought to this nation. We don't see the black church as a persecuted church. We don't see that people like Frederick Douglass were risking their lives teaching black people how to read. and He was teaching them how to read the Bible. Mm. We don't see that Christians in these eras were risking their lives to read scripture. If they got caught reading the Bible, they would be flogged. Some of them would be killed. We don't see that these people were a persecuted church. That's not what, and and that is what we see. That's the first first, first persecuted church we see in America, Mm. right? Mm. So we don't value the witness of of black Christianity. I'm going to call it black black Christianity, Christianity that black Christians have, have bought to bear on this nation that has held the nation accountable to ethics that are biblical and not just talking about the, the, the souls of man, but the holistic care of man and of humanity and of society, which I believe God wants. You see how he sets the children of Israel up for this when, he, when he's moving them to the promised land, Old Testament. He's constantly telling the children of Israel the kind of people he wants them to be. Right. That's what we see in Leviticus 25. That's what we see with the year of Jubilee. That's what we see with the gleaning laws. These are the people that I want you to be people that are just people that are just in society with how you deal with the poor, with how you deal with the vulnerable. This is why I'm giving you guys this stuff, because these are the type of people that I want you to be. And they were a foreshadowing of us, the church. And if we don't look nothing like what God is saying in those in in, in his principles and ethics, then we're off base, man. We're off base. And so that's the that's the magic wand I want to wave for the church that we get on base with that God's ethical heart to have a holistic care, a holistic love of neighbor that doesn't just care about their souls. Yes, that is primary, but also cares about their situation, their body, their social circumstance, and whether or not they are being abused in a society, which would, which God would say that type of abuse is not right. That's what I would like the church to be. And I think that that's what God is calling the church to be. So I'm going to, I'm going to have John, I want you to answer the, this, the, my last question is, cause I mean, you answered the one question in history. You answered the one question today. You did mm-hmm. it masterfully. You did it biblically. I, I can't thank you enough for that. So John, we're going to give the last word to you. If you had the same magic wand and you're going to wave it today, how would you use it to promote greater human flourishing in black and brown folks in America today? 
our dear brothers and sisters are hurting. They're hurting. And I think about the times that we're living in and they feel cruel and unjust. Uh, even in the honest dialogue that I have with God in my mm. devotion, I try to use honest, crass language so that the emotion of what I'm feeling is felt and I'm not bottling those things up. I would like for us, for the listeners to think about the resilience of black and brown people who have had to endure centuries of injustices, not limited to spiritual uh, abuses, but also the impact that it's had on our bodies and on our souls. And I think about, I mean, you mentioned Frederick Douglass, but he talks about this and others do as well. What it must have felt like for a enslaved person, and I use that term intentionally because their identity wasn't that they were slaves, but they're enslaved, an mm-hmm. enslaved person to be whipped and belittled and their humanity to be ripped from them by someone who was in a position of power and authority exercising God's word to do that very unjust thing, right? So I think about the ways that that has had an impact, not only within the African-American community, but all across the diaspora all over the world. And if I were to wave a magic wand, I think in tandem with what I mean was sharing, that we would have a more robust view of what a justice-filled world would look like, a world that would, would, would acknowledge the plight of the most vulnerable and that we would also identify ourselves with them and that we would see ourselves in them. I've often talked about before where the proximity to truth can be helpful, but sometimes it isn't enough. It isn't only because, and I say that, and I'll explain myself only because if I'm able to see someone who is in, is in a position of incredible vulnerability and turned a blind eye to that and justified my despondency or my indifference to that injustice with scripture, then Mm. there's a much larger heart issue that needs to be tackled there outside of what things that outside of what the political conversation may be in that very moment. I also think about how the injustices that are still being felt and experienced today is in a lot of ways re-traumatizing our fellow brothers and sisters. So not only are we dealing and grappling with all of the generational trauma that has impacted our people, but also we're being currently today re-traumatized by all of the injustices that are happening in our backyards and in our nation and the sheer amount of indifference from Bible-believing Christians that are justifying their lack of love, care, and concern for us because that issue or the concern is turned into a politicized conversation. So I say all that to say, I just wanted to acknowledge the resilience of our people the resilience of people of color to endure so much 
and to still have a faithful witness of who God has been, even in the midst of all that injustice. So in waving that magic wand, if, if, if it were today to, you know, kind of use the term again, man, um, I think there, I think that we need to recover what it means to see image bearers flourishing. And if we believe that God has given dignity, value, and worth to every single image bearer, that also means that we need to care for those who are most vulnerable among us. Because I cannot say that I will go out of my way to flourish and to accrue wealth and to obtain all the things I would like within this on this side of eternity while also turning a blind eye to the most vulnerable. So I I, I just have a strong conviction that uh, around the, the, the reality. And uh, again, I mean, you touched on this, that the gospel, along with the redemptive element that it has for our souls, it also has implications to our orthopraxy, how we live and what we do. And the gospel speaks to all of those things. And it's going to be costly. It's going to be costly. And yeah. here in the States, we love our comfort. I think we love our comfort a little too much. And in order for justice to be done properly, it's going to cost us something. I think that looks different depending on what context you find yourself in. It's going to cost you something. It's not just simply putting something out as a tweet or, or, or a social media post. That's easy. It's going to cost you something. Yeah. I think I would call our fellow brothers and sisters to be uh, on the receiving end of hearing and sitting under our fellow black brothers and sisters and hearing from those voices and having them speak into the ways that they can be contributors to the ways that we can move forward and that they can be allies without coming into the conversation and centering themselves but amplifying the voices of people who have experienced these things and that can speak into them in a more substantive way because it's through experience. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think God has a heart for human flourishing. And I think all of the injustices that we see grieves God's heart. And we need to ask ourselves, the church, what are we doing about that? Yeah. Yeah. Man, you have brought in so many different themes of this entire podcast. I mean, themes of uh, themes. Well, Trevin Wax talks about how much how much we, as the church, is beginning to move away from the the table of power, seat of power, into the margins of society. Uh, how much we can learn from the historic Black Church. How much we can learn from our. our brothers and sisters of color, the themes of real Christian empathy. I hear you talking about real Christian empathy, really understanding real relationships. And I love how you say justice costs something. And I mean, that's the, at the foundation of this entire podcast is the, is the cost that Jesus Christ paid for the redemption of our souls. I mean, that's the ultimate cost for the ultimate justice, for our ultimate injustice. And guys, I just I just can't tell y'all how much I appreciate what you're doing, how much I appreciate your time here today. And I just want to I want to remind our listeners, if you are in the Tampa area, Living Faith Bible Fellowship, we've got the
these guys. We've got Daryl Williamson. Um, I, I feel like I just want to take a Sunday off and go visit myself. We have the we have the the Southside Rabbi podcast. Amin and KB. Uh, I commend that podcast to you. Uh, maybe maybe we can put a link up uh, and point our listeners there. Um, that's not that part's not my my doing. But we would love to do whatever we can to uh, to to platform you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for your thankful for your faithful ministry and uh, and certainly praying every blessing on your ministry, your church, your families. Thanks, guys. Thank Amen. you, brother. Grace Thank to you. you guys, man. Thank Grace you for you. having us, and we appreciate you guys, man. Grace to all of you. Likewise, yeah. Th- this was this was uh, life giving. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, brothers. Amen. For more interviews, resources, and discussion questions based on the content you've heard, go to asinheaven.com. That's A S I N. HVN.com. If you liked this episode, please take a second to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, which you can do right from the Apple Podcasts app if you're listening there, or take a second to share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.